Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at the TensorFlow Developer Summit with Alfredo Luque. Alfredo is a software engineer at Airbnb. Alfredo, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi there. Let's get started by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning and and AI, and in particular on machine learning platforms and frameworks. Sure. So uh, I guess my interest in machine learning started in college, actually, well before there were a lot of uh, applications to do this. Um, Started with uh, writing some of my own kernels for GPUs um, by hand. And uh, exploring some of the really primitive ways you know, we could do ML back then. Uh, since then, a lot of things have changed. I mean, since you know the last five or six years, we had a lot of new developments. Now, what what and, uh, interest drove you to write your own kernels? Uh, I was just very curious uh, about you know what could be done there. Um, there had been a lot of interesting and promising research around image recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, the convolutional neural net papers have been starting to drop and. Uh, there was a lot of really great applications to actually try this out yourself um, outside of a research setting. Uh, so that's what really got me into it first. Uh, I went on to work in uh, like online advertising, like real-time bidding, and uh, later to work on my own hedge funds. And there we really leveraged a lot of um, techniques in like natural language processing, uh, which further kind of drove me into the field. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't mm-hmm. think I've talked to someone that started their own hedge fund before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're at Airbnb now. What's your focus at Airbnb? So at Airbnb, I work on our machine learning infrastructure team. Uh, mm-hmm. You actually had our uh, engineering manager on here a couple of episodes ago. Um, basically, we, we build tooling to make machine learning really easy. Um, developing models and productionalizing them should be something that everybody can do. It's kind of our, our belief. Mm-hmm. And I specifically focus on aspects involving um, the actual creation of models, um, you know, actually developing which techniques you're going to be using, uh, making sure that it's really easy to assemble those things, and making sure there's no additional difficulty in actually making it production ready. Um, so we have our own libraries that wrap around uh, most of the major ML frameworks and uh, make this a really, really easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. So TensorFlow is one of those, um, but we support most of the major ML frameworks. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was one of the aspects of what you're doing with Big Head that struck me in that initial mm-hmm. conversation with Atul, uh, the extent to which you've invested in building the platform to be framework agnostic and supporting you know, many different frameworks that the, the data scientists and software engineers want to use. Is that, uh, you know, since, since that responsibility falls on you, among yeah. others, but you know, how do you kind of manage the, the burden of doing that? Yeah, so we, we kind of dove in head first is, is the answer. Uh-huh. Um, there are really two approaches that you see um, to handling this sort of agnostic behavior. Uh, one of them is you basically treat a machine learning model like a black box. Right. There is some interface, you know, you feed it some data and it's going to spit something out and then you don't really care what happens inside. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that definitely does make your platform pretty agnostic, but it also means you don't really have a really nice integration. So as a data scientist or an ML engineer, if I'm actually trying to develop a model, it becomes much more difficult if all I hand off is just this big black box. We don't know if it's gonna run efficiently. Um, we don't know if I want it in a different environment, it's going to behave the same way. And uh, I'm not really developing using the same tooling that's actually going to be running my model. So MatrixML frameworks have started really working on this issue um, of integrating everything nicely. Uh, I think in 2.0, TensorFlow is really making strides there. Uh, and there's other frameworks as well that has really started focusing on this. But our goal was to really build these libraries that cleanly wrap um, around the major features of each framework. Um, that does mean a high support load, but it also does mean that our users um, when they write something, really feel like they're interacting directly with the framework and can use all its features. Um, and when they go to productionalize their model, then they get exactly what they wrote. Um, and they have a lot of predictability. And more importantly, they can just swap out TensorFlow for XGBoost or something else and get the exact same results um, in the earlier parts of their pre-processing. So that was a really important uh, aspect of Big Head for us was working on that. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that swappability kind of forced you down an approach other than the one you've taken where it's mm -hmm. more black boxy, more kind of least common denominator. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you expose the full functionality but yet still allow people to do swap outs? Uh, we basically dive into the internals of each framework. And, okay. <laughs> yeah, and try to um, try to find the interface point that's that sort of makes sense to let users develop their model, mm -hmm. um, but then encapsulate it in a way where we know how to now feed data into that model. So once we really establish the method by which we can feed data into a model um, of a given framework, then Whatever is on the other side, we already know how to deal with, essentially what, what's in the model. Mm -hmm. And what comes before, we built ourselves, or the user wrote. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a really, really good way of essentially converting all these data types and, and making sure the flow of the data works well. Another aspect we're exploring as well is once you write what we call a big head pipeline, essentially your entire workflow graph of all the pre-processing steps in your machine learning models, we can actually potentially convert that into, if you're using one framework, that framework's native um, operations. So if you're using purely TensorFlow, you can compile it into a TensorFlow graph. And I think this approach is neat because in that case, you'd get basically no loss in performance. But again, it does require diving down into the internals of, of each framework. And I mean, that is a lot of work, but we think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, we've also been collaborating directly, um, looking to, as we open source, um, integrate engineers from those different platforms and, and supporting some of these wrappers and uh, contributing directly. So, mm -hmm. One of the things that was featured here at the, the summit was a case study video about a project at Airbnb focused on categorizing listing images. What's that project about? Yeah, so at Airbnb, we have a lot of listing images. Basically, every listing you see might have you know, between five, 10, maybe more images. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges is showing the relevant images, right? So when you go try to book an Airbnb, typically the first thing you want to see is, you know, 
picture of the living room or the bedroom mm -hmm. and not like the bathroom mirror. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it becomes really important to get accurate um, classification of those images so that we can choose what to present. And for hosts, we can also assist them potentially in, in reordering them. Um, so it was a pretty big project because while image classification is a well-known solved problem, um, the issue is the scale. Uh, we have almost half a billion images to sift through. Mm -hmm. And if you try out a new model and you want to backfill it, that's, that's a lot of time to backfill it. So some traditional approaches, uh, just kind of running this on just things like Spark, you can run this on um, just with CPUs, would have taken months um, with any framework. And so one of the things we did was really focus on optimizing that. And uh, just taking a pre-trained model on Keras um, with some of the optimizations we made earlier in the pre-processing, we were able to get that to a few days. Um, just running on a few machines with GPUs. And so that was a pretty big one for us. Um, and there are many other projects like this that they can use a similar approach. What was it specifically that allowed you to get that to a few days from weeks or months? Yeah, so I mean, there, when you have image data, um, mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's never exactly in the format that you need. Uh, <laughs> um, in an ideal world, you have you know, a perfectly resized data set. Everything's like nice and clean, but uh, we have some images that might just, you know, they might be corrupted. Mm -hmm. um, they're the wrong size. Um, if you're using something like ResNet 50, I mean, you have to do some scaling and kind of you normalize get to the values. 24 by 224 image. Yeah, and then normalize it to a zero one range and uh -huh. reorder the color channels. Um, a lot of this stuff um, was written in Python, especially if you use Keras. There's a lot of Python in there, right? Um, and that becomes very, very slow. Okay. That ultimately limits. Even if you have the fastest GPUs out there, mm -hmm. they can't get images quickly enough um, to actually run inference on your model. Is the primary time savings inference focused or is it the training? Uh, an inference. Okay. Uh, and actually at Airbnb, most of our scaling issues are always with inference uh, okay. and rarely training. Okay. Um, we found at least that typically with you know the Volta GPUs or I mean if you use TPUs, um, a couple of machines are, are plenty to reasonably train whatever you have. Hmm. Um, but for inference, that's the real key. Um, if you so try to backfill something all day, new, every day at huge scale. Yeah, and if you try out something new, you know every day you get more images. So mm -hmm. now it's going to take even longer to backfill all of history. Mm -hmm. So we find ourselves backfilling all of history a lot, basically every time we we try out something new. Yeah, let's right? let's mm -hmm. dig into that particular point a mm -hmm. little bit more. Um, this was something that I, I don't recall if uh, Atul and I went really deep into this, but. Airbnb has spent a lot of time, like backfilling is a big part of the way you think about the problems that you're solving and like Zipline, a big part of what it's mm -hmm. doing is trying to manage these point in time uh, features and backfills mm -hmm. and like you know, walk us through like that whole space. What's the, is backfilling and, and how does it, where does it arise in your workflows? Yeah, so I mean, a really simple definition of backfilling would be, you know, if you have data that's collected every day, um, and saved every day, mm -hmm. then, you know, we might train our model on a couple of days, but 
if we want to apply our model to all the data that we've ever collected, um, we have to go through all of history. So it might have started being collected two or three years ago. So what's um, a specific example mm -hmm. where you might want to apply the model to all of history? So this was actually, that project is actually a great example. So, it's categorizing the listing yeah. images. Okay. Yeah. So if you just categorize last month, it's not too useful because, frankly, the user could click on a listing that hasn't been categorized. Right. Mm -hmm. um, doing that in real time ends up being a lot of wasted effort because Airbnb has you know a limited number of listings. It has many, but it's you know it's a finite number, mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty manageable number. And many users will be viewing the same listing. So you have a lot of duplicated work there, and it's a pretty expensive computation to go through 15 images every time somebody clicks on it, right? Okay. So if we want to categorize these images, we need to do it for all listings, right? Got it. Um, and if you want to run an experiment then and see by providing these better labels and these reordered images on the sites, do we have a revenue increase? Mm -hmm. You really need to go through everything. Okay. So that's kind of a rationale for it. And so it's, it's again, backfilling is, does it only occur in inference scenarios or is it also relevant to training scenarios? Uh, it could be relevant to training scenarios if you need to generate training data. Um, so one example of this is there are models that use embeddings. So essentially, uh, instead of a single value, you're outputting um, a chunk of your network, right? Um, many of these models do need these embeddings, and so you have to go run the embeddings model on all your data. Um, mm -hmm. If that embeddings model changes or something downstream changes, you might need to backfill everything. Okay. So there are, there are scenarios like this where uh, for training you might need to, to backfill something. I'd say the majority are, are inference. And for most enterprises, it's pretty similar to what we've heard as well. Uh, it's inference where mm -hmm. we need to chuck through a lot of, a lot of data. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. You kind of set up this backfill process. Well, you, you, the, the big task was to reduce the amount of time it took to categorize these images so that when you're doing the actual backfilling, it's mm -hmm. a manageable time. You mentioned kind of a big part of what you do is like digging deep into these frameworks. Did mm -hmm. uh, To what extent was that required in this project? Yeah, so we had actually done that work already in this case okay. um, for uh, essentially wrapping Keras. And right. um, there are different backends for it, but we had specifically also wrapped TensorFlow specific implementation. Mm -hmm. The investment here was also largely in building these reusable primitives that we could use whether we were using TensorFlow or not for pre-processing these images. Um, and we believe this time investment was largely worth it because uh, we have many other models leveraging these things now. Um, and it did enable our, our data scientists to experiment using a variety of models and they would always get the exact same data set um, after pre-processing. So we actually ended up writing a lot of these things in C++, um, largely because we wanted to use, uh, this is getting a little into the weeds, but we wanted to use CPUs um, for okay. this pre-processing um, because the models then can use all the remaining GPUs. Um, and uh, this provided a pretty significant performance boost and uh, it also meant that uh, anything else, you know, like a like a tree model, uh, could leverage it. So mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the the rationale for for investing the time there and okay. digging in. 
And so far as uh, Keras is concerned, the investment there was really making um, multi-GPU uh, inference very easy. Uh, our users don't have to think about these things. Um, essentially, whatever machine you're running on, we figure out what's on there. Uh, configure your model to run it in an optimized fashion. And that's one thing I think framework authors are starting to really focus on is uh, you don't need to think so much about the low-level mechanics of how you're running it. I'm trying to think of like if you are, if you're kind of starting out here and you're trying to, you know, say you've got a team that you are supporting and you've got folks that want to work in uh, in different frameworks. Like, where do you start, or where would you start if you were starting all over again in like providing them some tooling that would allow them to be most efficient. Where do you think like the most value is in the kind of things that you've been working on? You know, I think about this a lot, but um, I think we've made more or less the right calls. Um, there are two areas that we really identified where people waste a lot of time. Um, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of those is simply generating your features um, to train on mm -hmm. um, and to use for inference. Uh, this is a huge time waster because um, oftentimes it means a lot of really, really hacky querying of, of a database. Mm -hmm. um, you have no guarantees of, of point-in-time correctness or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do want to guarantee that, it ends up being a lot of work. And uh, typically, when you're building a model, you're going to iterate through a lot of different uh, data sets, mm -hmm. um, a lot of different variations of features. So that was one really, really huge area where people were wasting time. And this has basically been productized at Airbnb and Zipline. Yeah, that's Zipline. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. We, we like to call it, a, the, the uh, engineers working on it call it a time machine for your data warehouse. And, right. Um, so actually, yeah. let, let's uh, remember the second one and let's mm -hmm. just dig into yeah. dig into this because I think the... As I've kind of studied what you've done with Zipline, I, I mostly get it, but mm -hmm. like the point in time correctness, I don't feel like I fully, fully get exactly the situations where you need that. Um, and so maybe walk through kind of where that, you know, the, the various places that comes up and why it's important and how you how you get there. Yeah, there's a lot of models that, for instance, will use uh, aggregations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or some metric mm -hmm. uh, that's calculated you know, every minute or every hour or even every day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is how a data warehouse works is often at midnight, uh, you start feeding in data. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the other midnight, you basically cut it off. And um, there may have been updates in that, in that window that you miss. Mm -hmm. um, there may be things that happen afterwards that actually belong to that day. Um, there are a lot of things that can go wrong, and technically your data is not perfectly accurate, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Zipline actually worries about uh, the mutations uh, that happen to a database, and uh, it, it will actually look at, for a given window of time, for a given aggregation, how do I do this correctly so that the numbers I give you for your model are reproducible mm -hmm. um, and they're perfectly accurate. So this reproducibility is, is really, really key. I think that's, uh, for somebody building a model, one of the more interesting aspects. Um, if I'm gonna get the same data later on in time or earlier on in time, I know I'm always going to get the same thing. Um, and that's, that really just gives you a lot of ease of mind. 
So what's the specific example of a model that needs this kind of point in time correctness? Yeah, so I can't get too in the specifics, but for many of the fraud models, um, you okay. really do care about uh, actions that a user, for instance, may have taken um, mm -hmm. during a certain window of time. And those windows can get very, very granular. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're off um, or if you're missing data, uh, or even worse, if during you know, pulling the data two consecutive times you get different results, mm. that's really going to throw off your model. And, and the consequences there can be pretty disastrous. So you okay. really care about the precision. Um, that's one case where you might have very, very granular time windows, and it's very likely that you'll miss data um, just because of how data warehousing works. Right. So the yeah. data warehouse might have these daily aggregates or something, uh -huh. and you need to say... Tell me the number of times a user has tried to use this credit card mm -hmm. in the past five minutes from point X in time. Yeah. That kind of thing? Yeah, but it's aggregated daily. So if you try to do it yourself, if you right. have daily aggregates, you're never going to be quite right. Right, um, right. And the other really big feature is that Zipline gives you this same data streaming for free. Mm -hmm. So once you've backfilled your model and you want to actually use this in production, when you have you know real data flowing in, um, you can actually get that same data feed in the same exact format um, streaming. Uh, and it'll guarantee that that streaming data more or less will match exactly what you would get at the end of the day just using Zipline offline. Um, so users don't really have to duplicate any of this work. And for many models, they end up being hosted both online, so in production using the website, and offline for analysis. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's a pretty nice thing to, to be able to use. Uh, and so the second uh, kind of big category beyond the point in time correctness is what? Users write a lot of boilerplate, uh, okay. a lot of boilerplate code in general. Um, like I said, data is rarely exactly in the format that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and there's oftentimes a lot of pre-processing that's done. Um, for images, it's usually not too bad. Um, it might be an impact on performance, but there's usually not too much code. But if you're dealing with text, I mean, you have to strip a lot of punctuation out mm -hmm. um, and code the text a certain way. Uh, sometimes there's aggregation of features. Like you might do, you know, if this feature exists and this one doesn't, then mm -hmm. I want to emit both or something like that. There's a lot of business logic that people encode as a result. And historically, we just saw that this was copied and pasted. Basically, <laughs> okay. you might have, you know, 500 lines of copied and pasted code. With tweaks. Right. So you can't just always copy and paste it and expect it to work. Okay. Uh, this became a really big problem because people can't share this stuff. Um, they can't compose it very easily for a new model. And it's very, very error prone. So instead, we really focused on modularizing this. So we have a scikit-learn-like interface where people can wrap these unique operations that they can define or they can use our built-ins and compose them to build the entire workflow of the model. And then if they want to share just one piece of that with their teammates, their teammates can use that chunk as the basis for another model. Mm -hmm. um, and this reusability was a pretty big bet, but it's something that we found was a, a huge win for many of our users. Mm -hmm. um, and it enables us to do these nice things like uh, at the end of my model, I'm using XGBoost, but I want to use now like a convolutional neural network. Mm -hmm. And in one line of code, I can just swap it out and it works. Okay. Um, and so mm -hmm. is this, where does this manifest 
itself in the system? Is this the like the feature store aspect of this is Big a library that the user uses. The Big Head uh, library? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if they're working in Python, mm-hmm. um, they just import our library and can start just writing a model using the Big Head libraries. Okay. And you know, if they want to use a TensorFlow model, like we have Keras and TF estimators built in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can just use their normal TensorFlow syntax to, to build out their model. But it now cleanly plugs into the rest of their, their workflow. And so at the very end, they end up with a pipeline, basically just an object that contains all of their logic. And they can just save this thing, and it'll include everything they need to run it. And we run it verbatim in production. So, okay. um, yeah. The, they Does that tie like, into, uh, to, do you run it via a graph and airflow and, and that as the orchestrator, or how do you... Uh, it used to, no, it has its own graph scheduler uh, okay. internally. Um, so this will run on a single machine. Okay. Um, so it'll execute its components, uh, you know, possibly on multiple threads. There's, there's schedulers for different right. uh, steps they might take, but uh, it's meant to be real time. So, I mean, the latency is sub millisecond in many cases for, for using this thing. Okay. Uh, whereas Airflow might be for huge, you know, backfill jobs. Right. Um, so this entire graph, I mean, will run in, in uh, online inference as well. So every time you submit a request, it's running through the whole graph. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, in the future, there's plans to, to add components where we can have steps run on different machines and uh, use remote GPUs and things like that. But, mm-hmm. um, but for now, we found that even on a single machine, it's, it's efficient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those yeah. two pieces then summarizing are... Mm-hmm effectively kind of managing the data and figuring out how to deal with some of these trickier issues like point-in-time correctness and and Mm -hmm. efficient backfills and things like that. And um, kind of, I guess I'll summarize as like raising the level of of abstraction maybe so Mm -hmm. that you can, so that the user has to write less boilerplate and can compose pipelines from things that are already provided for them. Yeah, and and also whatever they choose to write. Um, right. I think composability of their own code is is something that mm, mm-hmm. that uh, we really care about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're just hacking something out in a couple of hours. Uh, typically, it's not going to be the nicest code. So at least encapsulating it, right? Yeah, is uh, is a pretty good way to guarantee you can use that in the future. Okay. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. So have you started looking at uh, the TensorFlow 2.0 and like how that impacts the way, you know, some of the things you've already built and mm-hmm. the way that your users will um, be using TensorFlow in the future? Yeah, I mean, it makes our lives a lot easier. Um, I how think so? One of the key things they did in 2.0 is deprecate a lot of really old APIs. Uh, <laughs> I think that was... That was an issue we ran into where there's a lot of there was a lot of incompatibility within um, the one point X releases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certain APIs would only work with certain features, and uh, that proved to be a really big source of frustration. I think by removing those uh, those old APIs and really focusing on kind of starting more of a clean slate, uh, it means that developers using TensorFlow will usually uh, I would expect have an easier time, and. I think there are some other neat features in there as well. I think uh, the fact they've moved to mostly eager mode by default mm-hmm. um, is something that, that people would like um, to be able to use. You find most of your users prefer eager mode to kind of the estimators layers API? The users that care about eager mode uh, has historically been using PyTorch. 
Okay. Um, just because it, by design, it kind of works in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they would they would consider TensorFlow as an option now that um, eager mode kind of works in a more easy fashion, and and they don't have these other uh, sort of static graph complexities to deal with for the most part. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's going to emerge as a as a pretty viable option for for many users just looking to to prototype. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even in Jupyter, it's really nice to just be able to to run a couple of cells right. and get a result. Right. So yeah, I think that's it's really opened up those features to people that I think would have not considered them in the past because mm-hmm. of uh, just the difficulty of using them. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot around 2.0 and recently mm-hmm. with integration with Colab and Jupyter Notebooks. Mm-hmm. Your team has built uh, quite a bit of infrastructure around notebooks. Like, do you, How do you see those playing together? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very much uh, two different approaches. I think uh, uh-huh. uh, I can't blame them, but Google does want to integrate with their own offerings. Uh, yeah. And we generally try to be really, really agnostic about what you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, while integrating with you know their own, uh, they have this really nice Jupyter collaborative editor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Google, Cloud. Google Cloud, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we use AWS. I mean, that's obviously not an option for us. Um, so we we do want a, a nice alternative that's that's open source and and we're able to iterate on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know if users can leverage that. I mean, it's it's a great product. I've tried it out myself, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's a, a great option. Do, do any of the new capabilities allow you to do more better things in your own notebook uh, implementation, or were you already doing everything you needed to do anyway? Uh, we definitely weren't doing everything we needed. Uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a long list of features that, that people yeah. like. Um, one of the things I've, I saw in the demo uh, were just the ability to better show these TensorFlow graphs and kind of expose parts of your model uh, mm-hmm. inside a Jupyter Notebook. I think that would be useful for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would need to take a closer look at, at what that offering entails. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I mean, anything they can okay. do to better surface uh, visualizations, I think that's one area where um, generally users are very happy mm-hmm. um, if you give them better ways to sort of see what's happening under the hood. Uh, TensorBoard was one really, I think it was basically the only uh, mainstream option that you could kind of do uh, for visualizing models. Mm-hmm. And uh, there just wasn't a very good way to integrate that nicely with Jupyter. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still a lot of caveats. So uh, I think it'll be really exciting if, if they start making that first class and uh, see what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. use uh, within Big Head TensorBoard pretty extensively, right? Uh, I wouldn't say. Am I remembering very that correctly, or do you have your own visualization stuff? We support TensorBoard. Um, mm-hmm. Not a lot of, not super well right now. Uh, okay, but but it's on a roadmap. Uh, there's yeah, I mean, there's a lot of internal visualizations that we have. Uh, we mm-hmm. have our own visualization library for data and. Um, visualizing these pipelines. And uh, we generally like to have a cohesive look whenever possible. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably continue to use that. But if a model exposes its own visualizations, um, we want to just leverage that out of the box. We don't want to you know, reinvent the wheel or anything. Mm-hmm. So as an example, one thing we did, uh, XGBoost has uh, feature importance kind of really nicely built in and we can just expose that plot, and people have right. loved using that. So, yeah, I mean, using TensorBoard or whatever the framework builds in um, is something that we, going forward, want to use. 
And do you use any of the other kind of components of the TensorFlow, the evolving TensorFlow family, like the probabilistic programming or uh, TFX or any of those other components? Yeah, I mean, we would like to be able to use more of the components, um, but essentially how we operate is also largely based on uh, what our users need the most right now. And, mm -hmm. uh, there are other focuses at the moment, but I think as we plan on going and open sourcing this, um, it's going to be easier for other people to add support for, for these different features that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probabilistic programming. Uh, there are a couple of frameworks that are kind of looking into this. Uh, I think Uber released one as Pyro. well. Yeah, Pyro. Mm -hmm. That'd be really cool to add, but we just haven't had uh, any tangible like use case that immediately needed it right now. It sounds like your focus is on enabling kind of the core use cases and you haven't had much of a need yet to support some of these other ones. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that I think if we offered it, um, you would mm -hmm. find use cases for it. Right. Um, but, but yeah, you have to start somewhere. And I think giving users really, really good fundamental building blocks that mm -hmm. work first are, are a good area where we can do that. Mm -hmm. I think estimators in TensorFlow are one area where they're really investing heavily in that. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd like to, you know, have that also be really, really well supported as well. And it's uh, not currently? Uh, we support some really basic uses, use cases with estimators. So mm -hmm. they have some pre-built ones and you can define your own custom estimator. Yeah, but, well, maybe take a yeah. second to explain what those are and how they're used. Yeah, so estimators are basically TensorFlow's, I think, uh, approach to something that's scikit-learn-like. Um, we have a very, very simple API essentially train and, and run inference. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the model is very encapsulated, right? Uh, you don't have to worry about sessions and graphs and all of these things. You basically mm -hmm. define the structure of your model and what its input data looks like. Right. And then uh, you have something you can just play with, right? Uh, they provide a lot of built-ins. Uh, so like deep neural networks, uh, you can kind of choose what those look like. Um, linear models, and I think they have a couple of other ones as well that I'm not mentioning. Um, and you can also write your own. So you can also just take TensorFlow code and, and kind of wrap it in one of these estimators. Um, this fits really nicely with what we're doing in Big Head, where we're trying to encapsulate you know, these models. Mm -hmm. uh, so being able to allow users to, to use these more easily and not have to worry about anything other than the actual design of the model um, that would be beneficial for them. So like I mentioned before, worrying about GPUs or where things are run, or that's one question that we don't want our users thinking about. Um, just because we can almost always make more informed decisions uh, at runtime about what that should look like. Um, so they can get the best performance out of their models. So yeah, that's, you know, that's something I'm pretty excited to see, see what they do with. Um, I think it was already in a pretty nice state um, not too long ago, but uh, now that they clean up TensorFlow more in 2.0, it's it's probably going to be a the de facto choice for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any uh, kind of you know taking a step mm -hmm. back and kind of thinking about frameworks and the framework space from the perspective of you know someone who has to provide these to mm -hmm. a set of users? Yeah. Do you have like a, a wish list or 
um, you know, uh, uh, predictions or where you see it all going? Like, how do you see the this evolving or what would you want to see to better support your users? Yeah, I think uh, focus on developers um, and focus mm -hmm. on the enterprise space is going to be one area that's that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, Google has been investing a lot in TFX, and uh, it is TensorFlow specific. So, I mean, you do have to use TensorFlow, mm -hmm. but it's it's also largely their attempt at uh, handling the entire end to end, right? Data management, model management, all of this. Um, we haven't seen that too much from other framework providers. Um, but one thing we have seen outside of TensorFlow is a focus on modularity a lot. Um, so another framework we've been exploring a lot is MXNet, and um, they've had a lot of focus as well on this. Um, so I really see, I mean, you're probably going to have only a few big frameworks left after a while um, for general use cases. It's just very, very hard to develop a new framework. Um, so yeah, I mean, I see the main players still is uh, probably TensorFlow and PyTorch and MXNet um, with specific frameworks kind of lagging behind. I mean, you have things like Spacey and, um, you know, you'll have things like Pyro for niche use cases or for NLP specific use cases. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, a consolidation is very likely to happen. It's just not sustainable to, to have 10 of these and... Um, <laughs> You know, developers splitting their time between them, but um, but it's I think it's healthy to have competition. Um, you know, one example of that was PyTorch was kind of the first to have uh, the ability to just run these computations on the fly, and you know, TensorFlow then came out with Eager Mode, and uh, MXNet came out with his own like comparative API. So I think that's that's a really good um, back and forth that will really help everyone. I think there's been a lot of focus on the research space too, historically. Um, so making it really easy to do research is nice, but for most people, they generally have a rough idea of where they're going to start and they want really nice higher level APIs. Um, and then when they have those APIs, the other issue right now is usually when you use one of those things, there's such a performance that, that Moving it to production is going to require more engineers. And that's something we at Airbnb don't really have. I mean, we, we try to basically only have people writing models and maybe a team working on the infrastructure, but nobody actually dedicated purely to uh, converting these models into a performant version, right? Okay. Um, that's something that we think computers can do better. So. Mm -hmm. Well, Alfredo, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.